tried to run away from me. So I hit him with my shoe again! How far are you gone? L.A. Not many people stop for a guy these days. Afraid of a stick-up, maybe. This buggy belongs to a guy named Haskell. That's not you, mister. Now, wait a Shut minute. Up. You're a cheap crook and you killed him. Never mind that stuff. Take a car. Ah? Uh, what do I do with the car? You can keep it. I've got 51 left. <laughs> <laughs> the Cult-Worthy Classic. A cinema podcast dedicated to obscure films and cult classics made before 1970. Your host, Antonio Palacios, and a weekly guest will deep dive into these films to prove if they are in fact cult-worthy. And so without further ado, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Antonio and I am your host, this is episode 11 of the Cultworthy Classic, and today we are talking about 1932's Freaks by Todd Browning. It is perhaps one of the most notorious and controversial films ever made, released and then disowned by MGM Studios for its really disturbing content. Now, producer Irving Thalberg has been rumored to do a final edit and destroying all of the deleted footage, which now appears to be lost. Now fans and critics still debate this film's merits, even though it was chosen to be in the National Film Registry in 1994 and considered a cult classic, it still has not received a proper release on Blu-ray or a definitive release with any missing footage. So even though this film has been known to be disturbing and somewhat insensitive based on first viewing to the people in the show, you have to go back and read the history on it as many of the characters featured in this film were real-life sideshow attractions and many said that this film was the best moment of their lives, and that Todd Browning, a circus performer himself in his youth, had the utmost respect and care for their well-being. So to talk about this film today is my friend Mike Jones, my amateur but educated film historian who joined me on the second episode of this show, where we talked about the infamous classic Who Killed Teddy Bear. He has a lot of great insights about the film's history. So without further ado, let's start the show. And here I am with my friend Mikey Jones returning to the show for his second appearance, this time to talk about another dark and mysterious film. This one a little bit older. This one is from 1932 from a very prestigious director. This is 1932's Freaks by Todd Browning. We told you we had living, breathing monstrosities. You laughed at them. Shuddered at them. And yet, but for the accident of birth, you might be even as they are. Their code is a law unto themselves. Offend one, and you offend them all. That's it. That's it. Go ahead and laugh. At first, I could not believe my own eyes. It's always been that way. I guess it always will be. That little ape's got ideas about. Now, Mikey, this was your first time seeing this, but you knew a lot about it before we actually watched it, right? Yes, I had I had read a lot about it and I had a lot of friends that loved it. It was just one of those movies that was forever on the list of things I needed to get to. And 
something else just kept taking over the list, you know, getting getting top priority over something else. Or I plan to watch it and I'd have a friend over and they go, oh, I've already seen it or I don't want to watch that. And then it would it would get pushed further down the list. And then eventually I couldn't find the DVD anymore. And it, it kind of uh, kind of became a lost film in my mind, so to speak. I first saw this one back in a film studies class years ago. And I liked it. I liked it a lot. And one of the things that was mentioned quite a bit is this is like such a notorious film for its time being considered like the ugliest film ever made and banned so many countries and for so long, hard to find. But when you watch it, it's actually quite beautiful. And the horror is not as horrific as one may be led to believe based off all the press off it. But the one thing I can say about this film is that Todd Browning is mostly known for Dracula. Like, that is his kind of, like, opus for most people. I prefer this film, even though it's shorter, and we can explain why later, to Dracula. What, what do you think? Yeah, definitely. I, I personally think of this film as his opus. I mean, Dracula did well off the bat. It was a huge success when it came out. And so that one kind of gets all the all the attention. It's also Dracula's in its completed form. Dracula's not considered a lost film. I consider Freaks a lost film because there's, you know, the original cut of the film was 90 minutes and it got edited down to like, what, 64 minutes? It is very short. And for the majority of the film, the flow actually is pretty good. Like, you don't realize there's been a lot of taken out of it. But once, like, that last act happens, and of course the, the third act announcement and the climax, it is so rushed and so choppy that you obviously can tell there was something taken out of this film. And you had a backstory as to why, but we'll save that for the end. So, 1932, directed by Todd Browning, with a screenplay by Willis Goldbeck and Leon Gordon, and it's based on a play called Spurs by Todd Robbins. Now, that's just like the screenplay and the story. As we kind of dug into it, a lot of it's really based on Todd Browning's actual life. Yeah, absolutely. I I was reading about it and like one of the first things I found out about the film and th this is why I consider it to be his opus is because he ran away to join the circus in what I consider to be the golden age of of quote unquote freak shows, forgive the term, and end of the circus, you know, late Victorian era, you know, 1890s. You know, I think if if anybody who knew anything about the circus could go back to any time period, that would be it you know, to watch the circus or, or one of these freak shows. And, and that's where, you know, Todd Browning at 16 ran away from home to do that. And his, his name, of course, wasn't Todd Browning. He changed it to Todd, which, you know, T-O-D, that is, is German for graveyard, is it? Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to double check that. And again, like a fascinating director, the behind the scenes drama of this film, not only just like the fact that MGM was known at the time for being like the glamour factory. It was putting out very glamorous, gorgeous films with ingenues and gossip magazine cover models as their stars. And here he goes and makes what people call the ugliest film of all time right in the middle of the glamour factory days. So yeah, I mean, just the, the whole idea about the making of this film. And as we get into it later, 
Irving Thalberg, one of the most renowned producers of that time. He remains uncredited in the official release of this film, but actually has a lot of behind-the-scenes turmoil and control of this picture and why we've seen the versions that we've seen and never the complete cut that we keep hearing about. As you say, it's a lost film that's right in front of us. Right, exactly. And, and yes, TOD is German for death, which he changed his name to because he, he was kind of the, and, you know, maybe arguably the, the father of, of the horror genre. Yeah, and that's so metal, man. You know, like, <laughs> exactly. Like Tim Tim Burton would be proud. This is like proto goth. I mean, that's what to, that's what Todd Browning was. Without Todd Browning in films like this and films like Dracula, we don't get filmmakers like Tim Burton. We don't get the Hammer horror series of like the 1960s in England. Mm-hmm. This really kind of introduces the whole gothic film. Now, a lot of people might say that uh, Vampire. It might be that, you know, from back in from back in the like 1920s um, with Max Shrek was the name of the guy. Yes, that was uh, Nosferatu, the, the first the first uh, vampire film ever made, which, you know, that's that's a film that is only around now because of bootlegs. Correct. So, yeah, the, between that and this, all these things that people love and this goth movement, I really feel there's some seeds planted by this film as well, and, and Todd Browning with Dracula too. And, you know, there's a lot of lost short films and a lot of lost industrial work that he had done before he started making like these long form talkies yeah. with Lon Chaney Sr. that kind of fed into this. Yes, he, he, he really did. So, so for me, this is kind of his perfect film, you know, his, his, his opus, as we said, as I said before, but it's really because when you look at his career and everything he was doing like during the silent era, he did a lot of films with Lon Chaney and, you know, Lon Chaney was a master of disguise, you know, man of a thousand faces. A lot of these films that Todd Browning did with Lon Chaney, they focus on the grotesque. You know, it's, it's almost as if you, you can really see the seeds of freaks starting out in some of these earlier films with Lon Chaney. You know, I think it was even said that the costume at the end of Freaks that the lead actress is in, the chicken suit, <laughs> was used and originally made for a Lon Chaney film, but it was cut from the film. But there's stills proving that it actually was for that film. And so, you know, you, you can really see the seeds from that coming and just everything in his career, everything in his life building up to this moment. So let's kind of jump into like the act breakdowns of this film. It takes place... In a French circus, which doesn't really have a name. Did you catch a name? No, it, it's almost like uh, King Vidor when he made his movie, The Crowd. You know, it, it's Johnny Sims and it's like every town USA. And it's kind of, I kind of got the same vibe from the circuses. Could be anywhere, could be any town, any circus. Yeah. And we are introduced right away to our protagonist, so to speak. There are many, but like our main one. And our villain, really in the first couple shots. So there's a single trapeze performance, and it is done by a lady named Cleopatra. And she is played by Olga Baklanova. Her performance is great in this. I think mean, she's she's gorgeous for the time. I, I think she's still really gorgeous. But there is a very prominent sense of villainy on her face. I don't know if that is like how they typecast her, or if that is like the makeup and the costumes they put her in. But before she even speaks, you know that she is not a good guy. Absolutely. You, you see that because you have 
hands coming to her and he's he's being looked on by his fiance frida mm-hmm. you instantly see the interaction between three and you can kind of see this love triangle going he's complimenting her and she's patronizing to him and then frida is watching the whole thing with just jealousy and then you you have that great scene where you know hans walks out into you know do his his job in the circus and then you know cleopatra walks up to frida who's sitting on a horse who's in a, a very pretty ornate fluffy dress with lots of frill and fringe and and she's playing with it and goes oh pretty and then you know frida immediately gets after her and is like don't do that leave me alone get your hands off my dress lady like you can tell she doesn't like her <sighs> Are you laughing at me? Why, no, monsieur. Thanks, I'm glad. Why should I laugh at you? Most big people do. They don't realize I'm a man. With the same feelings they have. Thank you. You are so kind, monsieur. She doesn't like her, and to kind of like make the the thing a little bit even more uncomfortable, the actors that played Hans and Frida, Harry Earls and Daisy Earls, were siblings in real life. That is why the love aspect between the two of them was not uh, put on as thick as it could have been. Yeah, it wasn't explored as much. Yeah. Now, Hans, he's a very respectable, gentlemanly, well-educated little person. Mm-hmm. And really, you just figure out that he's only in this this sideshow of this circus out of necessity based on his his condition. Same with with Frida. But we find out more about Hans a little bit later. But the first thing that we realize is that even though that technically Hans and Frida are engaged, Hans has like these kind of like self deprecating values of him being small. He wants to be as close to a normal person as possible. And somehow in his mind, because he has fallen in love with this, this gorgeous performer, Cleopatra, a big person, a I big person, he calls her, he, he feels like he needs her to love him back in order to be a complete person, which is sad because the guy is a nice guy at first. And one of the things I would say about Hans is that like, yes, his, character arc is interesting because he is constantly breaking the heart of his fiance. He's constantly going behind her back without being completely honest about it, which he owns up to later. It's hard to sympathize with him at first because you want to sympathize with him because of his stature, because of his condition. We know that Cleopatra's bad and we know that he is kind of playing both sides with her and Frida at first. So it does kind of make him a difficult protagonist for me yes and you have a dynamic going on there that i picked up on pretty quickly in which he doesn't feel like a man and he says that to her because she laughs at him at one point and and i can't remember what she says but it's it's some deprecating little remark about him being small and looking like a child i think and he says am i not a man do i not have i do not have the same feelings as a man you know, and he, he, he makes that point to her. And one of my favorite quotes in the film, uh, Frida says to him, 
to me, you're a man, but to her, you're something to laugh at. Yeah, such a heartbreaking line. You have not been listening to what I have been saying. Hans, yes, Frida. You have not been listening to me. Yes, I have, Frida, I have. Then what was I saying? You were saying, you were saying, what were you saying? I was saying, tonight you must not smoke such a big cigar. Your voice was very bad at tonight's show. Please, Frida, don't tell me what I do. When I want a cigar, I smoke a cigar. I want no orders from a woman. Ah, oh, Hans, this is the first time since we have been engaged you have spoken to me, so why is it? Oh, Friedrich, I'm sorry. To me, it made him a little more sympathetic because I, I get it. It's like he 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 wants to feel like a man, like he wants like, you know, any any other guy could walk up to her and and, you know, make a pass at her, feel like he had a chance with her. But for him, he doesn't feel that way. And it's almost as if getting her approval, getting this big, big person's approval proves that he's a man. You know, he, he knows he can have Frida. He knows that she loves him and he reassures her. Oh, Frida, my, my love, you know, my, what is it? He says, my liege, my liebchen. My liege. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, he, he speaks to her in their native language in German, which, you know, I, I know people who are bilingual. They'll say, oh, well, you know, I mean it when I speak in, you know, if I'm, if I'm French and I speak to you in French, then yeah. that's where I mean it because that's our language. That's what we share. But, you know, he's but he is playing both sides. And so I, I see where it can make him kind of a diabolical character. But then there's also this contrast because you when you first see him, you're not sure if he's a child in a tuxedo. Yeah, he looks very boyish. He looks very boyish and he has a very high pitched little voice. And to get off those characters for a second, we have a bevy of other characters to to waddle through. Now, here is the coolest part about this film, everyone. And if you hear us use terms that seem outdated during this, this episode, we are just simply quoting what they called them back then. 100% not the correct uh, nomenclatures for, for these characters. So if we do say something that sounds offensive, we are really just kind of referring to them as they are named in the film yeah. and credited because... That's just the way we have to speak about it to make the context work. We get to meet a few of the freaks pretty much right away. We meet the bearded lady. We meet the twins, the conjoined twins, which is one of the most titillating parts of this film. So we have a set of conjoined, uh, we have a set of conjoined twins, the Hilton sisters, and one of them is engaged and the other one's kind of like flirtatious with a boyfriend. And they make a lot of kind of like subtle innuendos about the romantic lives of these two. And one of the shots that I always think is really interesting is when the fiance kisses one of them, the other one feels it and kind of giggles. So it's really kind of opening up your imagination to what exactly does this this relationship entail? Yeah, there I mean. Ultimately, too, this is a pre-code film, which is is one of my favorite, I, I don't want to say genres, but one of my favorite areas of, of, of film history 
to explore right now just because you never know what you're going to get. And this film delivers. This film has quite a bit of things that I, you, you watch it and you're like, oh my gosh, they did that. And that is one of the, the funner aspects of the film where he plays around a little bit and he could have taken it so much further, Todd Browning, but he, he kept it pretty subdued where he plays around, but he lets that kind of linger in your imagination of, okay, so pretty clearly she's getting a kiss. She looks like she's enjoying it too. What else does that mean? But then there's also the scene where, um, is it, is it, uh, the clown Frozo Frozo, the clown, he, he, he does something to one of the girls and has her sister close her eyes. And is like, what am I doing? And she's like, you're doing this. And she calls it. And that's where we first get it established. Okay, they both feel it. They both feel they it. They both feel it. And then her fiance comes up and he's like, hey, what, 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 what's that? What are you doing with that clown? What are you doing with that sideshow guy? Come on. And the jealousy comes out. And there are some other characters, too. Like, let's not forget that the human skeleton is married to the bearded lady and they're about to have a child, too. So yeah. even then, there's a lot to the imagination to explore of like, all right, how did this relationship begin? Where did this come from? Again, there is so much in this film and it's little over an hour runtime that makes your mind work. And I like that because even though this was pre-code and he could have probably gotten away with a lot more by putting it in front of your face, it's the subtext that makes it interesting. It's the subtext that makes you like involved with the film and want to dissect it while you're watching it. Yeah, and 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 that's the thing too is like you do have this aspect, you know, wondering okay, the bearded lady and the human skeleton having a baby together. What what's that like? And you kind of go more into in your mind about that. But then there's also the very human aspect of it of they're doing a very normal natural human thing. They're starting a family together. Yeah. 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 Okay. And the perfect example. One of the things that this film does, I mean, again, the question is, what is humanity? You know, it means so many different things. But Todd Browning handles these characters with such love, compassion, and with like, I'm not going to say like a velvet glove, but he really stresses the point that these are just people who want lives like the rest of us. They are just, you know, sideshow attractions because they have really no other options in the world at this time. There was no activism for people like this back then. This was a lot of these people's only means of pay and only means of survival. One of the things that really kind of like drives that home is in one of the earliest scenes of the film, the landowner that the circus is is currently settled on is going through like the backwoods of his property and he finds a bunch of the freaks including the pinheads uh with with my favorite character in the film schlitzy they're they're kind of playing ring around the rosy they're swimming they're having a good time and this landowner's assistant is not all about this he's like we need to get these freaks out of here they meet madame tetralini who is kind of like the caretaker of the characters in this circus that really can't take care of themselves. So like the pinheads or like the very severely disabled ones. And she tells the guys like, these are just children. They're harmless. They're just mm -hmm. playing because they're children. Yeah. It's the Rolo brothers are the ones that are the landowners, the Rolo brothers. So yeah, he, he, he puts it right in front of your face early on that. These are characters that we should be sympathizing with 
not being afraid of. Yeah, exactly. And there's a quote that she has after that that encounter where they're basically like, we don't want them on this part of the property. And she's she's explaining, oh, they're I, I just like to bring them out so they can have have fun in the sun where people aren't gawking at them and staring at them, where they can just play like children, because after all, that's what they are. They are children. And she says something along the lines to, to, to them was like, people will remember them as these freaks, as these sideshow acts, but you've seen them playing. You've seen them doing different and you will know, you know, you've seen them different you've, in different eyes now. And you will remember that where other people don't because you've seen a different side to them. And as they leave and all these, you know, it's interesting when they come around, the two brothers, the landowners, they all run to her. Yes. To come for comfort. Like they're scared of the normal people. And she says to them, shame, shame. How many times have I told you not to be frightened? Have I not told you God looks after all his children? And that can be taken two ways. Like, you're his children, you're freaks, quote unquote, but he's looking after you versus, yeah, they're a little different than you and they look weird and they're scary, these normal, quote unquote, people, but God <laughs> looks after them too. So don't, don't be too harsh on them. So that's a really great play that you can have with that line where it fits both ways. Yeah, it's, it's so cleverly done, so expertly done. And let's not forget that there also are two human characters that are kind of like our protagonists as well. Mm -hmm. I feel like they're put in there mostly to be a complementary to the wickedness that is Cleopatra and the strong man of the circus, Hercules. And I'm talking about Frozo, who is this clown. So yeah, you have Wallace Ford, who plays Frozo, and Lilia Hyman, who plays Venus. Lilia, or Venus rather, they don't really explain what she does in the circus, did they? But she was dating Hercules, and her first scene is he's, he's hoisting her out. He's kicking her out, and Frozo meets her and says, yeah, don't, don't worry about it. I mean, better now than later. Yeah, I, have, I kind of think that she was just kind of a pickup along the way. Yeah, kind of a, a maybe a, a misunderstood kid that, like Todd Browning just joined the circus and they found a place for her, but we don't know what she does. We don't. And I feel like their relationship and their just involvement in this film, like I said, is just to have a contrast to Cleopatra and Hercules. But the difference is, is they are very friendly with everyone in the circus, including mm -hmm. these so-called freaks. Like she, she helps mend their costumes. She does their laundry with them. Like she's kind of like a, a hired hand, so to speak, for the mm -hmm. circus. And there she's very sweet and very defensive of them and very protective of them, as is Frozo. But Frozo is a little bit different because Frozo feels like this kind of salty, has been around the block a few times clown. And there is somewhat of a romantic attraction that kind of buds between him and Venus, which brings me to a very interesting line further on. So <laughs> we were talking about this. We really don't know what it means. We kind of looked into it. There's a scene where Frozo is apparently taking a bath. It looks like he's taking a bath. His shirt's off. And she walks up to him, and they start having a conversation, and she keeps peeking inside the bathtub. They don't really, like, make a point of it in the conversation. And then after the conversation's over, he slips out from underneath the bathtub. It turns out it was a prop, and he's wearing pants. And he says that she's a good looking kid. And she's like, yeah, you too. And then he says, yeah, you should have seen me. You, sh you should have caught me before my operation. 
We'll make it some other time, huh? Ah, uh, don't feel that way about it. I just got this idea all of a sudden. I gotta finish it. Hey, funny gag, isn't it? Yeah. I'm laughing myself sick. Oh, say, come on. Honey, hey, come on, come on, come on. Now, 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 now. That's much better. You're a pretty good kid. You're darn right I am. You should have caught me before my operation. And they don't explain it. <laughs> they don't explain what that line means. So, like, we went from all aspects of, like, was he a conjoined twin at some point? Or was he one of the freaks and had a surgery and now appears to be more normal? There really isn't an explanation for it. Again, this is this film just making you kind of like expand your horizons and wonder what do these subtexts mean throughout the movie. And, and it could have just been put in there as, as I mean, as a joke, I, I was trying to research it online as much as I could because it could be like eggs in the coffee, something that people misunderstand today or don't know what it means. Um, but people back then got it, you know, something that just goes over our heads today. But if you look at it by today's, um, you know, through today's filter lens, it almost sounds like he's maybe insinuating that he was a bearded lady at one point. You never know, but it's such a fun line. There's so much that you can imagine. And something tells me that it was just maybe put in there to be confusing and make people go, what? What? Well, it worked on us almost <laughs> 90 working. years later. It's still working, yeah. <laughs> so going back to like our main characters, we've got Hans, who is sending these lavish gifts to Cleopatra. He's sending her flowers, then fruit baskets, and then perfumes and chocolates and candies. So A, we kind of get the idea that Hans has money, and she gets it too because mm-hmm. she starts kind of bleeding him for it. Yeah. She she starts, you know, there's a scene where you know, she's like, ah, he brought me fruit. And she's acting like it's this big, you know, blah, blah, you know, whatever. And then she's like, I prefer champagne. And they get this idea that he, he, she tells him that. And he gets her this very rare, very expensive champagne. Um, you know, you, you just, you have these moments between her and Hercules where, they're alone in her trailer or her part of the caravan together. And, you know, they're they're kind of showing how she can manipulate him. And he just thinks it's all good fun. Yeah. And it breaks your heart because, like, he is so enamored with her. And poor little Frida's telling him, like, oh, I'm going to do her accent. I have to. She's all, Hans, she is just using you for your money. You need to be careful because she loves him so much. Yeah, and she sees right through it. Everybody so, does except Hans. He's got the he's got those blinders on. Yeah. The love blinders. Each time he gets her something more lavish. Hercules, who is now involved with her since he's kicked Venus out of his trailer, they are gonna just start taking it further and further to the point where they overhear that he has inherited a fortune from his his deceased parents. Yeah, you, you don't know where the fortune comes from. And it's it's dear sweet Frida who accidentally lets it slip and tell her, I know that you're just after him for his big inheritance. <laughs> and she she un she she kind of, you know, you, you get the idea that Cleopatra would have just bled him for a little bit of things and then, you know, gotten bored and moved on. But then she hears, oh, he has money. And she does she doesn't say, Oh, I didn't know that. She goes, you you have no proof, and and yeah, I know I, I I do care for him, I do love him, and and just tells her you don't know what you're talking about. Get out of my trailer, and kind of always has this this uppity attitude of 
I'm better than than you and I can get him if I want. And makes me wonder if there was anything that got cut from there because it pretty abruptly just moves on to the wedding feast. Yeah. So the plan now is that Hercules and Cleopatra are going to devise this little game where she is going to marry Hans. He's going to ask her, she's going to say yes, he's going to make it happen right away. But they say a line like, oh, well, he's a little person and little people die easily Mm -hmm. all the time. Yes. So, yeah, we know what their game is. The wedding scene. The wedding scene, probably the most memorable scene other than the climax of this film, wouldn't you say? Because like even before Mm -hmm. I even saw this film, when I was like in my late teens, early 20s, I knew images of this scene and I knew the chant, which we'll get to in a second just blatantly disrespectful. <laughs> they have this wedding for Hans and Cleopatra and everyone supports him. Even little Frida sitting at the table at the very end, forlorn as she is. And everyone's doing their act, like the fire breather's doing his act and the sword mm-hmm. swallower's doing his act. Right in front of Hans and everybody, Cleopatra starts kind of like kissing and flirting on Hercules. Yes, she, she starts... You know, acting like like it's any other day, not her wedding feast, and starts being flirty and kissing him. And then she looks over at poor little hands over there and she starts patronizing him. Oh, my little green eyed monster. It didn't mean anything. Are you jealous? And and doesn't she pick him up and hold him like a baby? She and just, picks him up and holds him like a doll, like, like a, a doll, toy, just, like, like just totally de- de- demasculates him in front of everyone at the wedding and you see Frida reacting to this and she's just there because she loves him so much that she just wants him to be happy. And she's already had the conversation where she's tried to, to warn him and and pull him away from it. But you know, she just has to let him live his life. And it's a really hard scene to watch in a lot of ways, just because you see how hurt he is by it. That that's the thing that I really like about him is he's, He's got very childlike features and he's a very expressive actor and he he acts a lot with his face and with his expressions. And and so when you see him go through this, it really is kind of hurtful. So then they decide to initiate her into like their collective of of freaks. Well, she we, married a freak. So she, she married a freak. And, 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 and it sounds ridiculous because she technically would be like one of the stars of the show of this circus. She's like the, the, the prima trapeze artist, and here she is being initiated into the freak show. Right, and he's the ringleader. Um, Hans is the ringleader of the circus. Yeah, like the ringmaster, the presenter. The yeah. yeah. So. And the classic chant. So they pour a big goblet of wine, which all of the freaks around the table begin to sip and pass to each other. Meanwhile, they are chanting this. Goobagabble, 
Google gobble, Google gobble. One of us, one we of us. You, one we of us. accept you. We accept you. I mean, it's the first time where like they made me feel a little bit uneasy, not because it was freaks doing this. I would be felt uneasy with any group of people chanting, you are one of us. We accept you. Google gobble, you know. And that that for me was one of the points where it drives home this idea of that they're they are, you know, you you cross one, you cross all. You know, and that's where you get this this point made. Cause that's brought up early in the film in in the the piece that was added on after all the edits were made by Thalberg. Um at the beginning where they're saying this this you know, introducing the freak of freaks, so to speak. And he says, you cross one, you cross them all. It's the code of the freaks. And that's where you get this point really driven in is when they're doing this, this chant, this initiation, and it's going around the table showing how they're, they're kind of all happy about this. And then it shows Cleopatra and she's just looking more and more horrified as the goblet is making its way down the table to her. And then the climax of that scene ends with she refuses to drink it. She throws it in their face and she calls them a bunch of slimy freaks and takes off with Hercules. And and Hans, I think, has has passed out. There was something put in his drink. So what we find out is they plan to poison him progressively and they did it too quickly too fast because we cut to like the the medical trailer or hans trailer and the doctor says that he has tomain poisoning which is generally like a type of poisoning that people would get from like spoiled food or contaminated food but no one else in the party got tomain poisoning right. so Frida starts putting it together. When there's there's also that that great scene right after the the dinner party where he's drunk and he's confronting her and saying that, you know, am I a joke to you? And then she pours, I believe she pours him another drink and that has the, the extra amount of the poison in it. Yeah. And, and then he, he crashes and then we get to the scene where the, the, uh, the, the doctor is looking him over and it's like, oh yeah, you just got food poisoning kid. You know how to, you've got a great lady here to take care. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's like, lucky you got this great lady to take care of you. So now Hans is sick in bed and lucky for him, his friend Angelino played by Angelo Rosito who I did not know until looking up after we watched this film, played Master, as in Master Blaster from Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, (laughs) one of my favorite characters of all time, to know that that was him in one of the most quintessential films starring little people ever. So yeah. Well, and and just as a side note, it's interesting when you look at the careers of a lot of the um, sideshow actors, I'll say, in this film, many of them went on and had had some, some pretty good careers. You know, like the, the Hilton sisters had a, a documentary made about them in the 50s. Yeah. You know, and they, they all did a lot of performing, you know, later on in their lives. The freaks are kind of putting together that Cleopatra and Hercules have poisoned Hans. We kind of get this idea that they are going to do something about it, but we don't know what. We don't know what they're capable of yet. But all we know is that Cleopatra is 100% on board with going through this plan. Every time. Hans feels a little sick. She's like, oh, darling, let me get your medicine. She pours a little black bottle into his spoon with the medicine that she's giving him, progressively poisoning him more and more and more. Yeah, and, and we see this in the background, and uh, his, his buddy uh, is, is watching the whole thing. You see him 
observing this through the window and watching her do it. And that's when some of the, because prior to this, like the film can almost be seen as several films in one. Like you have the first part, which I kind of interpret as being, oh, you know, very humanizing. You know, focusing on you see them doing things like eating. You know, you see the people with no arms using their feet to do things that normal, you know, normally people would do with their hands. And then you see the people with no hands using their hands to walk. And you just see how a lot of these people who are forced to do things a little differently live day to day. And it's it's very humanizing to see, okay, they, this is how they get by. This is normal. It shows them just like sitting down and eating and it works in the film. Then you have the next part of the film where it's almost becoming this like this noir story of of espionage and poison because you have somebody spying on them. And then it kind of feeds into the the final act, which is the you know crescendo and this horror. So what you find out is that Hans is now accepting the fact that his wife's a piece of shit and that she's poisoning him. So he's been actually spitting out the poison that she's been giving to him. And he kind of like conferences with his friend Angelino saying, they're going to do it tonight. What are they going to do, Mikey? What comes next? Well, one, one thing I wanted to point out in here is I just found out that Venus is apparently the SEAL trainer. <laughs> and she finds out about the plot through Cleopatra somehow, or through like spying on Hercules. So Hercules... While the freaks are assembling for their final act, she is trying to escape Hercules, who's trying to kill her for knowing, because Hercules doesn't know what's going on. Where all the freaks have gathered together, they get um, Cleopatra out of her trailer, and the initial plot is they are they're going to turn her into a freak. They're going to turn her into the ultimate freak. And Hercules is going to be him castrated and turned into a freak. And the scene leading up to that whole denouement is just fantastic because it kind of starts off with a moving horse carriage. Hercules is trying to break into Venus's trailer or Venus's carriage to kill her. The freaks try to stop him. They're in there to protect her. They got guns. They got knives. Like they're these little gangsters. The carriage hits a rock or, or a tree branch on the ground and topples over. And as Hercules is like climbing out through the mud, you see Schlitzy with like a knife in her teeth. You see Angelino with his gun. You see all the different characters mm-hmm. with various sorts of weapons. And they're they're crawling under out of the mud and it's very like Night of the Living Dead. It's raining, it's dark, and they are they are climbing towards her, but Hercules is busy trying to kill Venus and getting overpowered in his own right. So they don't respond. They, uh, he doesn't, he, he can't come to her rescue. So even though the scene was cut out in the final product, it is implied that they turned him into a castrato. They castrated him. So, yes, um, Cleopatra, essentially what was intended to happen in the original cut was that she is permanently tarred and feathered. She, they, they've melted her hands and deformed her, her body to look like a duck. They've gadged out one of her eyes and they've removed and slit her tongue so that she can just do this grotesque squawking. But she was intended to become a human duck. And what is cut is you see that process. You also see, um, the struggle between Hercules and the freaks as they castrate him. And then in the final scene of the film, it was supposed to be ending with the human duck squawking on stage accompanied by Hercules singing in falsetto 
God, I wish I would have seen that. And instead, it cuts when the freaks are are overpowering Cleopatra underneath the overturned carriage. And it goes back to the the tagged on ending with a um, sideshow and them introducing this. The freak of freaks is what he, he calls her. And, and we, this is an interesting point to kind of jump into like the variations of this. So the first time I saw this film, it was a VHS copy. So I don't know what release or what label put this out, but it would have been in the late 90s. It ended with that scene of her just going. Wah. A shocking reveal. A shocking reveal, and then it kind of like fades to black from there. Roll credits. The version that you and I saw, which is like the Turner Classic Movies curated version off of HBO, it has that, and then it kind of has like this little epilogue where Hans is enjoying his fortune. He has a manservant. Apparently, he's in a mansion. Frozo and Venus visit him. They bring Frida along, and he's like, I don't want to see anybody. I just want to be alone. Frida's like, oh, my Hans, I still love you. I'll always love you. I've always loved you because she is literally like the best woman ever. And and she they they also he's talking about how he didn't know what they were going to do to her. All he wanted was a poison vial so he could prove that she was trying to kill him. And I read that one of the reasons that was tagged on was because one of the one of the many things that disturbed audiences about the film was that Hans, this person who looks like a child, who a lot of people identified as looking like a child, would be somebody who killed someone or planned a murder or complied with a murder. And so that was added on there to soften up his character so that audiences would go, oh, okay, he didn't he didn't know about it. But um, there was also a third ending. My favorite book, which we refer to all the time, Danny Peary's Cult Movies Volume 1. This is in that book. And he talks about this film having more endings than the two that I've seen. What was the first one that we read about? First one that we read about um, is, I believe, a court scene in which they are getting married. Yeah, it's like them nicely dressed, walking out of a courthouse. We assume that they have just been married, like in... Venus and uh, Frozo. Frozo in in judges' quarters. And uh, Hans and Frida are, like, together, and everything's fine and dandy. There was also a the same one that you just described with um, them going into her man, into the mansion, and it's it it lacks audio. Essentially, it's just basically them going in and embracing. So they they did several cuts of it. I know MGM kind of distanced themselves from the film, and the MGM tags line was removed at one point. Um, I did look it up, and the Warner DVD that was released of this had. Uh, several alternate endings on it. So you could see all of those. Now, according to the research that we did, Browning was in control of this project all the way till the end of filming and through most of editing. So that means that those scenes must have been shot by him. So there was probably some studio bug in his ear of like, well, let's get different coverage to see how this actually can play out. Like, let's, let's be safe here. Let's see what yeah. kind of film we have. They they did that with so many films because um one of my favorite silent film directors King Vidor he was on MGM as well and he had he had just done a huge hit uh, in 1925 with the Big Parade and so he wanted to do uh, a film and 
the studio basically said, we can afford for you to just to have an art house flop if you want. And he made this movie called The Crowd, and he wanted it to end with the lead character killing himself. But the studio said no. So he said he shot like seven or eight endings to the film before the studio finally said Okay, that's what we'll do. And this is all kind of the same era because, you know, you had probably some of the same people involved in both films. So I think you're right. They probably were going film a few different things for us to play with here. But from what I read, Browning was not involved. He turned in the film. The film was done. It had its it had its screening and audience reaction was awful. Yeah. One woman claimed to have suffered a miscarriage during it. People, <laughs> and you know this is part of the the joy of vintage film, right? Is that you you never know what really happened because I think the studios wanted things to the most shocking film ever made. People were fainting in the aisles. Eh, maybe that didn't happen, but yeah. maybe it, you never know. But you know there there was definitely a a disgusted response from the audience so much so though so that Irving Thalberg took the film and made cuts without notifying Todd Browning or getting his consent or input and by that point he was moved on to another project and I think he was just I don't know maybe he was just done fighting maybe maybe he just was like I can't do anything about this now well the part that we we discovered that was really disturbing is the reason why this film only exists even with its tacked on endings at like a 64 65 minute screen time is that that additional footage that supposedly was between 20 and 30 minutes was rumored to have been destroyed by Thalberg as to never be reintroduced into the picture and this was something he was known to do on many a film. Yeah. Um, I, I've, I've heard that from various, various people, various sources that, and, and, and furthermore, it, it may have just been something where like they cut the scenes out of the, of the, the, the negative or the work print. And then it, you know, they struck new prints off that if it had been in initial release and there were other prints of it, there'd probably be some hope to finding it now, but because it was, it was pre-release cuts. They probably didn't stick though. They probably didn't know. Oh, we need to save these because it was kind of like, okay, well, no, this is this is hurting the film. This is hurting the studio. And and you know, back in those days, they weren't really preservation minded. They didn't think, oh, in ninety years, people are going to want to see this. You know, it's yeah, like, I mean, right they, now, this is damaging to our studio, and this needs to make money. And we need space in our archive to put other films. Like mm-hmm. there was no intention back then of like, oh, we'll put this on VHS. We'll put this on Blu-ray. We'll put this on this. No. It was like one and done. And after its theatrical run, you'd be lucky if you got some kind of like, I don't know, repertory theater to show it or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it, back in those days, once these films were done, they were done. There was no dollar theater. There was like maybe like, oh, a, a re-release for a day or some kind of matinee or something like that. Or people could like rent it for a party from the studio. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But yeah, again, and your big your big focus when you were in school. And in in your career work in archiving was the fact that so many films have been lost to time and all that exists is either like maybe a little bit of a soundtrack or maybe a little bit of a trailer Mm -hmm. or just photo stills or just snaps of the negative. This could have easily been one of those films. Absolutely. I mean, it there there was a little bit of there was some preservation efforts made in those days. They weren't as as they are today. Day. I know that the um, the man who who created the production code Hayes 
yeah, that William Hayes wanted wanted the studios to save their films because he had said the future needs to see see who we were and what we did. This is a record of our time. And so he he was very preservation minded. He told studios to do it. But I, I mean, with the way they cranked out films and then, you know, the fact that all of these films up until like the 50s were mostly all well, they all were made on nitrate. And that's a problematic film base. It, it's it's, uh, you know, combusts on its own in the right conditions. There was it was just a recipe for disaster as far as preservation goes. And it's it's you're right. I mean, this absolutely could have been a film that we only hear tell of these days, you know, and I think it's, it's great and a gift that we have what we have. Um, I know that there was a, a side, like a, a circus that actually took it on tour at one point. And that's probably one reason why it, it stayed around as much as it did um, was because it was, it was kind of roadshowed at one point by, by a circus. So let's talk about the influences of this film because we, we definitely, we talked about it earlier. You don't get films like Tim Burton films, like Edward Scissorhands or or Big Fish. You don't get films like that mm-hmm. without this movie. You you don't get a lot of that kind of like weird avant-garde. You don't get Nightmare Alley without this movie. You don't get the HBO show Carnival without this movie. Like th- there's so much to it. Let's talk about other influences as well because um apparently this was one of the favorite films of Joey Ramone and the whole gaba gaba hey gaba gaba hey from the Ramon song yeah. is pr- according to this uh this source is practically their version of the chant from Freaks. Yeah, it it definitely it definitely was a film that left its mark and its impression. I mean, it's it's too weird not to. And I don't mean weird in a bad way at all. It's just there's no other film like this anywhere in film history. That's this early especially. Yeah. Like it's, it's just like you, you look at it and you look at everything else being made around that time and you just kind of go, wow, that the fact that this got made and, and Irving Thalberg was one reason it did. Louis B. Mayer was tried to shut it down several times. There's like talk that he segregated the, the studio lunchroom because other actors were sickened by the freaks. So they had to have their own space to eat away from everyone else. And that started complaints about the film that made Louis B. Mayer look into the film a little more closely. And so Thalberg really stood up for the film and helped it get out and helped it get released. You know, then it gets, it gets banned in certain States and certain countries, England for 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. And here's an interesting thought. In some states, laws haven't changed. They just aren't enforcing them. So technically speaking, in some states, Freaks is still banned. Many films are. <laughs> but That's yes, hilarious. it left its mark. It, it really did. There's like, I, I don't think, like you said, we would have to say Tim Burton wasn't influenced in some way by this film with his work or inspired by it. I mean, I think it's fair to say that he was. What would you say is your favorite part of this film? What would you say is the most memorable moment of this film that like sticks with you? There's there's two that really stick with me. Um, the scene where Frida and, and Venus are talking and you you get this idea. It, it's very much like just it's girls talk. You know, she's going to her with, you know, wanting advice. Yeah. And you just get this connection. That, that's one of the things I loved about this film is just the, the very human portrayal that even though it's called freaks, they're not like 
he's not entirely exploiting the freaks. You get the, you know, he handles it with such tenderness and care and just this moment where they're talking and they're connecting and you get this idea that Venus doesn't care about, you know, the fact that Frida's a little person as they're called in the film. And you know, the, the, the little person doesn't care that she's talking to a big person. You just get this human connection. And then the other one and I was so disappointed when it just gets cut short. It's just the scene just so expertly shot where they're all descending upon Cleopatra under the under the, the carriage and just uh, making their attack. And you just want like you just know it, it was man, it's so frustrating because, you know, that it had to have been shot so well. Yeah, that's the one that sticks with me. That's the one like when I close my eyes after I watch this film. It was that it was it was schlitzy with the knife in her teeth underneath the cart mm-hmm. that really just stuck with me because it's such a complete contrast to earlier when schlitzy gets a new dress and she's twirling around in it and she's just the happiest person you've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Now she's got a knife yeah. in her teeth, you know, yeah. one of us. I, I love it. I love it. A hundred percent. Um, so if you were to do a double feature, which this is the perfect film to do a double feature with, cause it's only an hour long. So mm-hmm. you're in for a, a, a pretty speedy night. What would you pair with this? Oh, geez. I was thinking about this. Um, I just watched this movie from 1934, I believe called double door. It's, it's said to be a horror film, but it's not as much a horror film as, as it's it's portrayed, I mean, it's got the these these spooky aspects to it, but um, just it, it's a it's about a a, a wealthy spinster who's kind of dominating over her brother and her sister and has controlled their lives, and she's already ruined her sister's life because she makes a point of saying, "I'm 42, and you know I have no hope of getting married." And one of the servants goes, "Oh, well, there's a woman I read about who got married at 64, and and." Uh, <laughs> You know, and it's just me now at 41, like hearing, oh, I'm so old. I'll never be married at 40, 42. And I'm like, well, well, good, because I'm 41. I still have one year. Still have a year to make that happen. I, there's still hope for me. <laughs> but that film, I think, just because they're close to the same era, one, uh, this Double Door is Paramount, but um, just the contrast I'd like between the two films. Both kind of horror films, but both have a lot of heart. Nice. I would pair this with 1952's Greatest Show on Earth by Cecil B. DeMille. Ah. It's almost three hours long, so it kind of makes sense because you get a nice little short film about uh, the dark side of the circus entertainment industry and then the kind of like sugar-coated bubblegum 1950s Hollywood highly polished version of the circus. My parents come from the circus. My parents are circus people. They were flying trapeze artists. They said that the the lifestyle of the circus that they were used to highly reflects Greatest Show on Earth. It's really not that far off. It's the production. It's Cecil B. DeMille. I mean, he made the Bible look glamorous with the, with, look with the Ten Commandments. I mean, so, the Bible is dirty. <laughs> yeah, he, he made it look oh super polished and clean. But yeah, I would pair it with that because then you get your your two sides of the circus world. You got the dark side and then you've got the polished side and you're still clocking in just a little over four hours. Well, I mean, that now makes me think maybe what if you paired it with Dumbo? Because Dumbo is also a very short film. Okay, so if you wanted two films that equal the length of one normal film, pair it with Dumbo and and make sure that you put the kids to bed right before Freak starts. Dumbo is like the one, like one of the only movies that will make me cry. I, I probably am going to regret saying that at some point, but... But during the, 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 the baby mind scene? Yes. 
I mean, come on. Okay, he's, it's touching. He had a hard day. Everyone's making fun of him. And his mom and rocks his mom, him to sleep. Yeah, but yeah. she's confined. It's, uh, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. Move it's on. a good scene. Move, move it, on, I'm going to cry. <laughs> well, Mikey, thanks for joining me on this one. You were the perfect person to bring on this episode. And yeah, this one is one that you brought to the table. And uh, the double door fascinates me. We might have to do that on the next one because I'd never even heard of it until you showed uh, the DVD cover to me. So it, it it was a blind buy for me. Like my birthday was the beginning of the month. And my brother was like, what do you want for your birthday? I, I was kind of in a hurry. Saw that Kino had done that and just kind of threw it in the basket on, uh, on my wish list on Amazon. And it, it, it came to me a couple of days ago and and it was it was a good blind buy. And that's what I'm seeing. So, yeah, definitely have to check that one out. Awesome. Well, everyone, you can find Freaks right now on HBO Max. It's the Turner Classic Movie curated version. You can also rent it several places on like Apple and Amazon, but do some research. Try and find out which version you're watching and let me know on Twitter which ending you saw because I'm fascinated to see these other endings now. Like I'm so amazed by this film. Don't forget the Warner Brothers DVD that was released in the 2000s, early 2000s, has several alternate endings so you could treat yourself and have all of them so my name is antonio palacios i was here with my friend mikey jones mikey jones <laughs> and uh make sure you follow me on twitter letterbox facebook and instagram and make sure you turn into my other podcast the Cultworthy podcast where i talk about more modern films and more obscure cinema so everyone have a good week and i will see you later catch you next time guys thanks